Welcome to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Cinema Junkie is finishing up a holiday break, and here's the last archive episode, and it's all about film editing. Oscar nominations come out on January 22nd, so here's a little something to help you understand the art and craft of film editing. I'll be back with a new episode in two weeks all about pre-code Hollywood. So enjoy this archive edition of Cinema Junkie, all about ace editors. Okay, how many times have you come out of a movie and said, that film was too long, it should have been better cut, or walked away from an action film going, wow, that was well edited? If that's the case, then maybe you'd be surprised to know that the editor is also the person who can help craft an actor's performance, the person who'll go through hours of footage or improvisation to find the minutes or seconds where an actor shines. And that's the way we shape this raw material, very much the way you a sculptor takes a lump of clay and shapes it into a portrait of someone. Editing's also a profession where women got to make inroads from early on. Back in the silent days, Dorothy Arzner proved her worth and her business savvy by using stock footage to embellish Valentino's bullfighting picture, Blood and Sand. By repeatedly displaying such skill and smarts, she eventually moved into directing. Today I'm going to focus on women in editing by interviewing a pair of women, Thelma Schoonmaker and Janet Ashikaga, who just received career achievement honors at the American Cinema Editors, or ACE, Eddie Awards. The 67th awards ceremony took place on January 27th at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. The ACE Board of Directors noted in a statement regarding their honorees that Janet Ashikaga and Thelma Schoonmaker have helped create some of the most iconic films and television programs in entertainment. And while their resumes alone are deserving of recognition and celebration, their commitment to the film editing community and shining a light on the craft of film editing is also noteworthy. In the spirit of shining a light on the craft of film editing, I'll be speaking with both of these women. First, I speak with Thelma Schoonmaker, a seven-time Academy Award nominee and three-time Academy Award winner for Raging Bull, The Aviator, and The Departed, all three directed by Martin Scorsese. She began her editing career working with him in 1967 on Who's That Knocking on My Door and then Woodstock. Last year, she edited Scorsese's 28 Years in the Making passion project, Silence. I pray, but I'm lost. Am I just praying to silence? Then I wrap up the podcast with an interview with 10-time Emmy Award nominee and four-time Emmy Award winner Janet Ashikaga, who worked on such TV shows as Seinfeld and The West Wing. But first, let me share my interview with one of my idols, Thelma Schoonmaker. She, along with women editors such as Margaret Booth, Dee Dee Allen, and Verna Fields, inspired me as a teenage girl to see editing as a profession I could succeed in. And to this day, I edit all my own TV packages, podcasts, and radio stories. It's something I love. So it's a genuine honor and thrill to speak with Thelma Schoonmaker. Since the ACE Award was her most recent honor, we began talking about that. Well, of course, it's always wonderful to receive an award from your peers because I I don't think many people understand editing. It's very mysterious craft. So it's wonderful to know that the people that are giving me this award are my fellow editors who do understand this craft. You know, when when we've received awards, uh, for example, for the editing of Raging Bull or The Aviator or Departed, it's for the kind of editing which is very dramatic, the fight scenes in Raging Bull, the uh, airplane crashes in in Aviator, 
and then the sort of uh, gang violence in in Departed. I think for the general membership of the Academy, that stuff is is easier to see as editing. But a lot of editing is not flashy, and to be really good at it, you have to know how to shape actors' performances, how to build drama in a scene, uh, things like that. Uh, rhythm is very important to get the proper rhythm going between two actors, for example. You know, that that's what takes years of work and, and <laughs> learning how to do that kind of thing, which is equally as good editing. For example, there's a, a scene in Aviator where there's a lunch at which Howard Hughes, played by Leo DiCaprio, goes to his his girlfriend's family's lunch, and the uh, Kate Blanchett plays Catherine Hepburn, uh, his intended and or his girlfriend, shall I say? And the the I love that scene, <clears throat> which is really everybody overlapping each other, which you're not supposed to do in editing. editing. Everybody talking on top of each other because they're completely insensitive to who he is. They're just more involved in their own little world. What? What was that? Oh, he's a little bad. Pass the goddamn butter. I beg you. You read flying magazines, trade journals on on engineering, aviation. We read books. Well, Howard has to read the trade pieces, Mom, because he's designing a new airplane. Oh, really? Do tell. Well, uh, it's quite exciting, actually. It's a, it's a spy plane for the Air Corps. A, a twin-engine plane with some, I must admit, some rather unique design features. You see, it has these, these two booms. Luddy built a birdhouse once. You remember that, dear? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, a mere trifle, darling. Oh, you know, I remember the I, painting. I the, the painting, it's called May 18 hey, or something. Hey. Anyway, oh, go as fast as overrated. All the Spaniards are. Nonsense, Picasso is sacred. I'm a urologist. It was quite aesthetic, really. A, a sacred monster, that's what Picasso the birds is. birds didn't care for it much, but the bats do. Oh, I'll bet. Oh, that's such bust. speak up, dear. Nothing, nothing, Mrs. Hepburn, nothing. Then why did you speak? And it was one of the best things I've ever worked on. It was a great joy to work on it, but it's not the kind of thing <laughs> that gets editing awards, if you understand what I mean. That's a very long answer. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you is because I do think people are very confused about what editing is. And uh, you constantly hear people come out of a movie that they didn't like and they go, well, that should have been better cut. It should have been shorter. And mm. and so if you could tell kind of the general film going public something about editing that you feel is a misconception or something that you would like to say about how you define what editing is that might help them understand it better. Yes, well, I think there's a big obsession today with with match cutting. You know, is there a mismatch in the cut? Does somebody have a hat on in one cut and then in the next shot they don't? That's very overdone, but that's not a very good example. But when we're working, uh, Scorsese and I, on performances by actors will will always choose to make a bad match cut if the performance demands it if something great has just happened in a delivery by an actor and even though maybe the spoon is in the wrong place on the table in the next cut that shouldn't matter and so but i think today with people being able to record things replay things over and over again i understand lots of people's stand with the remote control and say, oop, 
there's a bad cut there. <laughs> and if you look at the great history of filmmaking, you'll see bad mismatches all through the great classic films that have ever been made because it wasn't. It's just not that important. So that that's a small thing to uh, bring up, but it does drive me a little mad. Uh, and we're famous for our our bad jump cuts, for example, in films like Goodfellas. And somebody, a fellow editor at the Academy Awards one day said to me, in which uh, Goodfellas was nominated but did not win, why did you make that jump cut uh, where Paul Servino has a cigar in one hand, in, in his hand, and then in the next cut you see him, after cutting away to another actor, you don't see the cigar. The cigar. And I said, which jump cut? I mean, we make so many. So I was very surprised, <laughs> but that's not really answering your question, and I don't know if I can answer it. It's really taking a lot of raw footage that comes from the set. So you might have six takes of a close-up of Andrew Garfield in silence and four takes of the uh, Japanese villager he's talking to, and my job is to take those takes and start intercutting them in a way that makes you feel they're really talking to each other, that there's a certain rhythm and pace to the scene, that it doesn't drag, that I'm not spending too much time on one person instead of on the other. And that's the way we shape this raw material, very much the way you a sculptor takes a lump of clay and shapes it into a portrait of someone. So I think people may not understand how raw the material is that comes to us and what we have to do to manipulate it and cut it to make it work. Well, and I think people may not realize, too, how much an editor can craft a performance of an actor through the editing. Or ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, do you have an example of that? You can ruin an actor's performance. You can, you know. It's very important to, to do the best. Well, one of the things I feel, you know, sometimes 250 people make a movie. If you count up everybody from the drivers to the director, all the people on the set. And it's my job to to do justice to the incredibly hard work they have put into getting it on film. I have a big responsibility, and you certainly have a huge responsibility towards actors. I think one of the reasons that Scorsese is such a good director of actors is that he makes he says he creates a safe environment in which they feel free to experiment and be very bold because they know that he will never take that footage and if it's not working he wouldn't use it so they're willing to do very bold and brave things and it's my job to make sure that when they do that I get it cut right <laughs> to make it work and in editing also, I think another misconception is it's not simply about making cuts or making shorter cuts because there's also this sense of if you choose not to make an edit at a certain point and let a shot yeah. hold, that's as much editing yeah. as making the cut. Definitely. So there's a famous instance in the, in the scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci is asking what's so funny about me of Ray Liotta. Um, and he keeps asking it and asking it, and finally, it was Marty knew this was a true story that had happened actually to Joe Pesci. He was the one who was being tortured, and uh, he said to Ray Liotta, "Wait, you know, there, there's going to be a moment when you realize you either have to break this with a joke, because things are getting very scary, and 
uh, the choice you have right now is either to break it with a joke or get killed. What happened, in fact, is that uh, Marty said to him, when you get to that point where you know you have to say, oh, come on, Tommy, wait, wait, and hold for a bit. And we experimented over and over with how long to hold before Ray Liotta says, come on, Tommy. We tried 10 seconds, 8 seconds, 6 seconds. I think we finally ended up on 6 seconds. Really funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? Just... What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? well, let me understand this, because I don't, you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... Do you know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, to Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker! I almost had him. I almost had him. Yeah, stuttering prick. So that's the kind of thing that is very much part of editing. You're quite right. How long you hold, when do you use a close-up or not? Marty thinks editors use too many close-ups too soon in scenes. It's often important to see the ambience of a room or, or to see two actors in a two-shot together. And so it, it's just made up of a thousand decisions we make every day together. Uh, and it would be very hard even if you were sitting here, to maybe understand what the hell we're doing. (laughs) And you would get very bored as we go back and forth and back and forth over the same material, massaging it uh, until we get it right. And you get it right a lot. Those films are all beautiful. (laughs) It takes a a lot of work, you know. It's a lot of work, yeah. Uh, I think a lot of editors are not given enough time these days. Yes. It's really important for us to live, because you have to live with a film. You have to begin to understand what it's saying to you and uh, where it wants to go. That was really true with Goodfellas. I felt like we were riding a horse. Uh, That film was so tightly written, so beautifully shot and acted and directed that it was really there. And we just had to make sure we could stay on top of it and finish it properly. But it it had a tremendous, I want to say, thrust. Well, you mentioned this time factor, because another thing about editing is sometimes you really need the time to kind of like put it away for a little bit and step step back so that you can reevaluate what you've done. Oh, very much so. And I always tell students, because, you know, sometimes you get very, you get very depressed if you can't make something work. Um, And I say to students, turn off the machine, go home, have a good night's sleep, and come in in the morning and start again, because a fresh a fresh eye uh, is always helpful. And one of the reasons we screen as much as we do is because even one person in the room makes you start to see the film the way that person is seeing it. You can just feel it. 
you know, you can feel, uh, are they restless? Uh, why didn't they laugh at that joke? And uh, you can feel how they're reacting to the film. And that gives you a very fresh eye to it. So we try and screen as 12 times if we can, recut in between each screening, debrief our audience in between each screening, and go back and whack away at it again. But you're quite right. It is necessary sometimes to get away from it. But even one person in the room, if you're screening it, will make you see it a different way. You'll you'll see it the way the audience sees it. And also, do you sometimes face the dilemma of knowing how difficult it was to shoot something and how much effort went into something, and then when you're editing the film and looking at it as a whole, you feel like, wait a minute, that scene or that shot really doesn't work? Is that a painful process? Yes, it's very, very painful, and it happens a lot in movies. Um, One of the reasons I don't spend much time on the set, although I love being on the set, to watch Marty work with the actors, which is a very exciting thing to watch. Uh, But it's better for me, and he feels this too, for me to have a cold eye, which comes from not being on the set, to see the dailies every morning when they come in before he sees them and and let him know if I think there's anything wrong, or which rarely there is. But how I think things are developing an actor's performance, for example, it's good for me not to know what they did on the set, that they just, you know, brought in some incredible crane and uh, undercranked the shot. And it's better for me just to see it and see if I feel it's right for the movie. That's very important to Scorsese and me. We we often have to drop my favorite scene or Marty's favorite scene in a movie to get it the right length or to get it to move properly in the middle, say, and it happens on almost every film, except Goodfellas, where there was only one shot, that one setup that we dropped, which was the little boy in the beginning learning to drink espresso coffee. Otherwise, we dropped nothing in that, uh, no scenes in that movie. But we have in many of our movies dropped scenes, and that's quite normal. But it's very, very painful. And as you said, if it's a film, if it's a sequence in which a lot of money was spent on it, that's really painful. But it's painful even if it isn't. And so on After Hours, which was a film that was too long in the writing, actually, and it needed to be cut down, Marty and I both lost our favorite scenes. We dropped 45 minutes of wonderful, funny, beautifully improvised scenes from that movie. And uh, finally, when the Blu-ray come out, I said to Marty, could we just put those scenes at the end, not not in the movie, not back in the movie, but just at the end on the Blu-ray so so people could see them because they were so good. But that's that's the extent to which we sometimes have to go. And it is like cutting off your leg. It really is. A lot of his films have violence in them. And I'm curious from an editing point of view, like how do you approach scenes that have violence? What, like when do you hold back and when do you decide to show? I mean, what kind of approach do you have when you're editing scenes that contain, you know, graphic elements like that? Uh-huh. Well, first of all, um, you should understand that we make that violence here in the editing room. It never looks like that when you get it from the set because no actor could be hit and have blood shoot out of his face. You can't do that. It's all done with trick shots and and even explosions and everything are, you know, that's all done without the actor there with a stuntman maybe or 
or certainly in a safe way. We have to create it here. We have to make it believable here in the editing room, but we do censor ourselves for sure if we think it's too much for an audience. And But I think I do think that Marty's one of the few directors these days who uses violence properly. It's, a, it's unfortunately a big part of our world, uh, as we know now, and uh, to ignore it is not right. But you have to know how to do it right, responsibly, and for the right reason, not just gratuitously to make a film more entertaining because you've got a lot of people being shot up or things exploding. That's, that's, that's bad. So he never does that. Well, the violence is always very effective because there's times when it is graphic and disturbing, and then sometimes it's only implied and it's also disturbing. Yes. yes. Uh, you know, he, he uh, uses it. He grew up in a neighborhood of much violence and where the parents would be told, take your children off the street at three because there was going to be a killing. And they would. And then the kids would go back out and play again. So that's the way he grew up. He has a deep understanding of violence. I, I, as I said, I, I think he uses it properly. I don't think a lot of people do <laughs> these days. How did you initially get involved in editing? What was the appeal of that to you when you were starting out? It was all accidental. Um, but I did have some, obviously I must have had some inkling towards it because when I was... Fifteen. I I, used, I live. I was born and brought up a, 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 abroad. Both my parents were American. We came back to New Jersey when I was fifteen, and there was a wonderful show running then on television called Million Dollar Movie, where they would run the same movie nine times in one week. And Martin Scorsese learned a great deal of filmmaking by watching that movie nine times until his mother screamed, "Shut that thing off!" And I. Unbeknownst, I didn't know anything about Scorsese then or filmmaking, but I would come home from school, and before my mother got home, because she was a nursery school teacher, she would come home later than me and put her hand on the TV set to see if it had been on. I would try and sneak in a little bit of this million-dollar movie, uh, and one of the films there just struck me very deeply, which turned out to be a film made by the man I then married much later, Michael Powell, the great British film director, so obviously there must have been something that was already affecting me. But I wanted to become a diplomat. I studied political science and Russian at Cornell University, took the State Department exams, passed them, but was then told I was way too liberal and would be unhappy there. And so I took a, a started working for a professor at Columbia University who was running the first Peace Corps program, and then I saw an ad in the New York Times, and it just said, willing to train assistant film editor, which you never see. Nobody does that. We all ask each other for assistance. But this editor had come in from Los Angeles, and he didn't know anyone in New York. So he put that ad in, and for some reason, I read that ad that day. I have no idea why, and answered it. And he was butchering the great films of European filmmakers like Fellini, Antonioni, Visconti, Truffaut, to fit in late-night television slots. So on uh, um, Rocco and His Brothers, a great movie by Visconti, he took one reel out. I said, you can't do that. And he said, nobody's looking at these things at 1 o'clock in the morning, but Martin Scorsese was. And so it was so awful that I decided to quit. I had just enough money to take a course I read about 
at uh, New York University six weeks in the summer uh, about filmmaking. And for some reason, I decided to do that. And there I met Martin Scorsese, and my life changed forever in a wonderful way. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful way. But it was all accidental. It was all accidental. It was fate. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I've been so lucky in my life, and um, that was one of the, the longest streaks of it. <laughs> and what was that first Michael Powell film that you saw in that? It's called The Life and Death of Colonel Blim. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it, it's, it's an incredible movie. It's still yes. my favorite of all of his, and it's very, very powerful. I've never forgotten it, and it's just so amazing. I'm sure Marty was watching it at the same time. Was there a point that you remember watching a film and being aware that there was a person who was an editor, a person who was crafting the film in that way? Not really until I met Marty. I didn't know anything about editing. He taught me everything I know. Um, His first feature film called Who's That Knocking? And he had edited the first part of it, and then run out of money, and we all helped him, the people who were at NYU with him, we all helped him finish it and shooting it. And we we were just a small group of people all volunteering our efforts. It was a great, great learning experience to see how a movie was made. But then he had to teach me how to edit it. I had no idea. And he's a great editor. It's his favorite part of filmmaking. So it was a very wonderful way to learn from such a, a incredibly talented filmmaker. We could see right away from his student films that Marty had it, that he was going to be a significant director, even way back then. So what quality do you think someone needs to be a good editor? If you didn't have that background to start with, do you think there's something, a particular, like, personality or disposition that helps you to be a good editor? Yes, I think there's a lot of things. My mother was very eager to excite me about all kinds of art, literature, music, theater. So I grew up in a, a an environment that, that nurtured art. I think it's very good for someone to have that as a background. Also, I was uh, encouraged to play musical instruments and sing in uh, chorus at my university. And that, having learned to be a musician, was very helpful, I found, later in filmmaking. In terms of personality, I think it takes someone who, first of all, is a good collaborator, because you usually are working with a director, and you have to learn how to work together and not squabble over everything. And that's one of the things I think that Scorsese sensed early on about me, that I would be a collaborator with him, and it wouldn't be an ego battle over who's got the right idea about what kind of cut to make here. And when a director and an editor are fighting over a movie, it's very bad for the movie. You have to have tremendous discipline. You have to be a very hard worker and have a lot of stamina and stay, be able to stay with something uh, until you get it right. And you have to have a good sense of rhythm, which for me, it helped very much that I had had a musical experience in my life. And music, of course, is so important in movies. It's very good also when you're laying in scores and editing them to know something about how musicians make music. 
so I would say those are the the basic things. Were there any editors that influenced you or any films that you particularly admired? Well, Scorsese was not only teaching me about editing, he was also teaching me about the history of film. And yeah, there's so many I couldn't even begin to. But, you know, a film by Kurosawa, for example, I remember vividly seeing an extraordinary edit in, in one of his movies that I saw early on that that stunned me. But I must say that most of my examples have come from Marty, so I'm not as influenced by other editors as perhaps people who grew up in a world where they were working for Dee Dee Allen and she was teaching them. And so she nurtured a great number of editors who went on to very big careers. But for me, it was really Marty. Now, there have been a number of really great women editors. It seems like early on, women were kind of allowed more into that field than some other fields in filmmaking. That's right. And I'm wondering, um, was it because they saw this as some sort of, like, clerical <laughs> kind of work or something? Well, yeah. I, I think for me, and I, I've just bought the There's a new book out about women editors, which I'm very glad to see, because I've been fascinated to find out through a couple of articles um, that I read how early on women were editors. And then I think when it became a a career where you could earn some money and also get rewarded uh, when you see your film up there on the screen and people react to it. I think men perhaps nudged their way in and took over, and then women rebounded back again after World War II. But it's quite extraordinary when you read that Cecil B. DeMille's uh, editor was a woman. Uh, She was nominated for an Academy Award. There were several incredibly important female editors in the 20s and 30s. And I think it's because when there was no editing at first, there was a 100-foot roll of film, and they would go out and shoot, for example, a train, the famous incident of the Lumiere brothers in France shot a train coming into a station. And when people in the theater saw it, they jumped back as if the train was coming right out into the room because they'd never seen film before. So there was that was just a hundred foot roll. There were no edits in it. But then, while the great, as the great filmmakers around the world, Eisenstein in Russia, William Fries Green in England, David uh, Griffiths in in uh, America, and the Lumiere brothers in France began to experiment with making a cut to say the engineer in the cab of the train coming into the station. They needed someone to splice the film together. And so I think they brought, there were women rolling the the hundred foot rolls in the labs. And I think they said, we'll bring them in. And they they know how to make a hot splice with, you know, we used to put a little bit of liquid cement on the splice. They know how to do that. So bring them into the editing room. And then they became editors. They learned editing and became editors and very significant ones. And there were studios that hired people like Margaret Booth, who oversaw all the editing on all the films being made by that uh, studio. So they were very prominent in the beginning. Not a lot of them, but very, very prominent. And then, for some reason, maybe, as I said, because it became a lucrative profession, and the war intervened, maybe not so many of them. But now there are lots, (laughs) lots and lots of them. Which of your films do you feel provided you with the biggest challenge? Well, they all do, <laughs> but uh, for different reasons, for different reasons. But 
the one that I learned the most about how to make a movie was Raging Bull because it was the first major feature film I had ever worked on, and we were on a Hollywood lot, and I had never done that before. I never had an assistant before. I was making documentaries and things in the period when Scorsese couldn't work with me because I wasn't in the union. So I was working on documentaries, and I would put all my own trims away. I never had an assistant. And suddenly there I was with three assistants and all this film pouring in every day, this unbelievably strong footage. I couldn't take my eyes off De Niro. It was so beautifully directed, so beautifully acted, beautifully shot, black and white, absolutely beautiful. And the use of music, the improvisations, it was just fantastic. And so I think I learned the most on that film. Uh, and it was just pure gold in my hands. <laughs> well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy. Go kill people. Kill Vicky. Kill Salvi. Kill Tommy Como. Kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself the way you eat. You're a fat fuck. Look at you. What do you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean kill you? Me. Kill me. Start here. Kill me first. Do me a fucking favor. Because you're driving me crazy. You're a killer. You're a big shot. Just kill. You're a killer. Excuse me. What do you mean by you, though? So? What does that mean? Don't yeah, mean even, nothing. Even you don't even know what you meant by you. Don't mean nothing. Joey, that meant something. You mentioned Tommy, you mentioned Salvi, you mentioned you. You included you with them. You could have said anybody, but you said you and them. You really let this girl ruin your life. Look at you. She really did some job on you. You know how fucking nuts you are? Look what she did to you. You fucked my wife. What? You fucked my wife. How could you ask me a question like that? How could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that? Just tell me. I'm not answering you. I'm not going to answer that. It's stupid. And you've had this long career working with a single director repeatedly. How is that? Is that something that you feel like over the years you guys have improved that relationship or gotten to the point where you barely need to speak to each other? Or uh, no, no, we speak all the time. I mean, after I do the after I do the first cut while he's shooting, then when he comes into the editing room, we edit everything together. So every cut is made together. And we talk constantly about all kinds of things. We're very good friends. We're longtime friends. You know, I've seen his career from the moment when he was just a student at NYU. I've seen him grow and learn and and make wonderful movies and challenge himself with each one of them, and I get to go along with that challenge and try and figure out how to make it work. I think that the fact that we collaborate so well, that as I said, it doesn't become a battle of egos, and the film business is filled with egos. I always tell students one of the first things you have to learn is how to deal with everybody's egos that you're going to be working with and learn how to work with them and not make it a destructive situation. And that's, I think, why we get along so well. He knows that I'm going to do the best for his movie, and that's very important in a working relationship. So it's just one of the greatest things in the world to be in the room with him. He's so incredibly fascinating and brilliant and funny. 
and also very moody. You know, I mean, he he goes through big ups and downs as he uh, battles with the artistic vision he had for our film. Is it, is he going to get there with it or not? And that's an incredible arc to watch. In fact, I wish I could keep a diary of it every day, but I work so hard I can't. <laughs> you mentioned things like making a hot splice and hanging up your trims. These are all things that people starting in editing right now in film school don't have any experience with. So what kind of changes what kind of changes have you seen in your career and do, how do you feel that has affected the editing process or or kind of ha, have they all been helpful things have has all this digital and computer editing made it a lot easier do you miss anything from the past well i was a very reluctant convert to digital but once i was trained by someone very patient um and clicked in i was off and running but i did hate to give up film i loved it we all still love it we still shoot our movies on film we edit it digitally and release it digitally, but it is edit, it is shot on film because digital is quite. Um, we're not sure how long it's going to last. It's rather fragile, and a film, if you keep it properly at the right temperature and right humidity, will last a hundred years. Digital will not. You have to constantly re-transfer digital elements every five years to make sure that they're not just going to vanish, which they can do. And because we just love the look of film is why Marty still shoots on film. Many big directors today are still shooting on film as long as they can hold on to it. We don't know how long film will even be made, unfortunately, but many, many directors today are insisting on shooting on film, even though we then finish the entire film digitally. Even though I was very reluctant to give it up, it was became quite clear to me that I could suddenly make four or five versions of a, of a cut of a scene to show Marty when he comes in instead of one. And if I wanted, if I was on film, I would have had to take it apart, hang it in the bin, remember how I did it, recut it a different way. And then if we didn't like it, go back to put back together the film the way I originally did it. Oh, that's very time consuming. So now I can do that and not worry. I always have the original cut. I can have four different versions of it to show him. And that's very, very good. So I experiment a lot, much more than I ever would have dared to do previously because uh, of that flexibility. And we can ingest visual effects. We can slow film down, speed it up. Just do all, we can have 24 soundtracks instead of two, which is all we could have on film. When we're editing, there would be many more tracks when we do a sound mix, but not in the editing room. We could only run two tracks, and now I can have 24. So it, the, all that is a, a, a very big step up. There's no going back, I'm afraid, to editing on film. <laughs> I had to at one point to help a, a filmmaker out, and it was fun. I enjoyed it. If you could give advice to people that want to become editors now, what would you tell them is the best thing to kind of prep yourself for editing features? Is it going to film school? Is it just making your own films? What kind of things can they do? I don't know. I'm not sure if going to film school is enough. I think mainly I found I just learned on the job, you know. I think going to film school, I would love it if everyone would study the history of film, which is how Scorsese became the director he is, because he learned 
and watched endless numbers of great movies that had been made since the beginning of filmmaking, and he learned how to direct from that. Um, but a lot of students today do not do that, and that's very, very sad. I strongly encourage people to see as many classic films as you can. It's really as if a painter started to paint without ever having gone to a museum and seeing a Van Gogh painting uh, or something like that. I think that's madness. Uh, that's the first thing I would say is learn what you can from films that have been, the great classic films that have been made. And fortunately on TCM, the classic movie station, you can watch them. But also, I just say, try and get your foot in the door. Do whatever it takes. <laughs> Run, go get the milk for the coffee, uh, drive the car, pick up packages, whatever you can. Get your foot in the door so people see you. And uh, if you're someone they think is worthwhile, encouraging, then you will move on. But making your own films, which is so possible today, is obviously a great thing to do. So I, I hope I've answered the question. <laughs> Yes, well, with all things related to film, there's never any clear-cut path for like, what you can do no. to guarantee yourself entry into the industry. Yes. Mine was completely accidental, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been a real thrill talking to you. I wish I could like go over individual films with you, but I know you have uh, other things to do. Well, thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Thank you for your questions, which were very good. Yeah, it was a real thrill. Thank you very much. Now let's say you win. You beat De Niro, yeah. which is definitely should beat him. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. They still got to give you a shot at the title. You know why? Why? Because the same thing as before. There's nobody left. There ain't nobody around. They got to give you the shot. You understand? If you win, you win. If you lose, you still win. There's no way you can lose. And you'll do it on your own just the way you wanted to do it, without any help from anybody. That was Thelma Schoonmaker, who just received the ACE Career Achievement Award. Schoonmaker has worked in feature films, but Janet Ashikaga has made her mark in television. I asked her how she felt about receiving the ACE Award. I'm just so delighted to receive it because it really makes you think back on your career, the people that you've worked with over the years and what really affected you most and all of that. So it's really one of those great moments to just think back and ponder. And how did you get into editing? Was that something you had always been interested in, or what attracted you to it? No, it, it wasn't, and it's part of my um, acceptance speech is the fact that I grew up uh, in New York City in a pretty dysfunctional family, and they kind of put me on a fast track to failure. And But one of the things that they did do was they bought a television. Well, I watched... Father Knows Best and Flash Gordon and Make Room for Daddy and any of a number of them. And what I discovered was that people were just treating each other with a lot of dignity and respect. And I thought that was a lifestyle that I really wanted to emulate. And what I also realized was that I was fascinated with television and the fact that you had television in your house literally every day, that TV people became your friends. And they influenced you a great deal. And by watching television, you suddenly realized the power that it had to really just be able to affect you by the use of a close-up or sound effects or music or whatever it might be. And so the visuals of storytelling became something that I, I fell in love with and discovered later on that editing was something that 
I really enjoyed because you could really spend a lot of time by yourself and um, just solve problems that way. So it was um, it, a great deal of it really was it just affected me as a young kid and helped me develop in a direction that I never really um, anticipated. And I, I think about it and I think about how much effect, you know, we've just lost Mary Tyler Moore, how about a lot of women that um, it really helped them in their career choices and the paths that they were going to go on in life. And I think that television just really inspired you to be somebody that maybe at first blush you never really thought you could be. So you're being honored along with Thelma Schoonmaker for these career achievement honors. She's primarily known for editing feature films with Martin Scorsese. You are primarily known for working in television. Do you feel there's any fundamental difference between editing feature films and television? Is the the time frame that you're on for editing TV, does that make what you do uh, much different from what feature film editors do? Well, I think the fact that you do have the very shortened schedule in television means that you do have to make decisions a lot more rapidly. Your budgets are a lot more constrained, so a lot of times you have to do things with a lot less. I think that um, the format of television is also one that's very, very different from the feature. And a lot of times with features, even when you're screening them and going through a whole process, you're looking at them in a larger format in a screening room or a theater or something. But television has that immediacy. Right now, there's one that's probably about 15 feet away from me that's on in the room that we're in. And so just the, the fact that it's so close to you all the time, I think, really affects things. But I think budgets are a big restriction. But I think it's also the, the fact that you might be working on an hour show or a half-hour show, and knowing that you may be on the following week talking about the same story, your storytelling is going to be a lot different. The fact that you're doing, say, a series you have people that are watching that series because they enjoy the people they're spending time with. And I think a lot of that affects the way that you're going to tell a story because after a while, you could shorten things. It's like when Kramer entered a room, he would get a laugh just because he entered a room on Seinfeld. Who is it? It's me! Why are you locking the door now? didn't have to do any kind of setup because everybody was already familiar with that character. So there's a certain degree of familiarity that you develop so that you can take shortcuts sometimes, I think, with your storytelling that you don't have the the luxury of if you're doing a feature. Is there a significant difference between editing something that's a comedy and editing something that's serious drama, or is the, the skill set still exactly the same? I think skill set is the same, but I think the way that you approach them may be different. One of the things that I discovered was that comedy is very musical and that it has a specific rhythm. And each person that's doing a comedy has a different rhythm, but it's definitely there and you need to respect it. And it's that rhythm or that timing that an audience is reacting to. It's like if somebody tells you a joke and they step on the punchline too early, 
the joke doesn't really work. Well, it's like that with editing, that there is some music to it that you have to respect. With drama, there's a different rhythm, and sometimes you're establishing the rhythm with the way that you're doing the editing. A good example would be if you look at the feature um, The Sixth Sense, and you compare that to The Matrix, and both of those were up for best editing for an Oscar. Those styles were so specific to those stories that were being told, and a lot of that was just in the editing room, how they how they developed that. Both of them were dramas, but it was just very appropriate to the story that they were telling. I think most people who go to movies or watch television tend to be more impressed by flashy editing where it's quick cuts or it's an action scene or maybe a musical number. But can you talk a little bit about some of the skills or some of the, the challenges that an editor faces that maybe people aren't quite as aware of, like maybe cutting a dialogue scene? Just going back for a moment and talking about a film like The Sixth Sense, that was one that 99% of people didn't get the story, what had actually happened. But when they looked back on it, they thought, well, I was told everything that happened. I just didn't pay attention. But if you had added a few extra frames to every cut, it would have given you enough time, probably, to think about what you had just seen and question it to the point that you would, you would say, oh, okay, I know what this is about. So in that instance, the story is right in front of you, but the editing was so delicate and so specific that it propelled the story along at exactly the right pace. So that's one that I look at and say that that was an extraordinary challenge. And that's one where there was no flash. There was no pizzazz. It was just straight-up storytelling. And for you, what, is, what kind of scenes tend to pose the biggest challenges for you? I think sometimes if the story isn't really clearly thought out and you have to manufacture something in the editing room, that either wasn't on the page or wasn't in the performances or wasn't thought out by a director. I think those are the challenges where you have to manufacture something if you hold cloth. When I got to interview Thelma Schoonmaker, she talked about how an editor can help craft a performance. How do you see that as part of the editor's job? I think it's a big part of the job. And I think that the biggest job that we have, I think, is to make everybody look good. And One of the things that we're doing is we're all doing storytelling, but we have one particular style of storytelling that that we're doing. So you could take an actor that maybe has a very measured, slow, deliberate performance, and you just know that that's not going to work for the scene. And you just know that you have to do a lot of editing, you have to do a lot of pull-ups, you have to do a lot of cutaways and all of that to just try and pace up the performance to make it what you had envisioned. And I know of one situation where an actor saw the performance in the final cut and said to the director, yeah, that was just great, I just really nailed it, didn't I? And the director had told me that in the editing room they had to work magic to get the performance to be paced the way it was. Do you feel that there are any misconceptions that people have about what it is that you do? I think a lot of times people don't 
know what editing is. People ask you, well, what is your job? And you tell them, and they're not. The brilliance of editing it's just is that if it's done really well, a lot of times you don't notice it. Somebody has to tell you, oh, you know how every time that you see a close-up or a wide shot, that's the editor at work. What do you feel, or what of the shows that you've worked on, uh, which do you feel most proud of, or did you have the most satisfaction working on? I, you know, I would have to say Sports Night. Studio A, this is Master Control. You're up on Router 7. Have a good show. Will, show me Denver. And I need 15 points of sound on Kansas City. Denver's up. Yes, it is. Give me Green Bay. Stand by audio, stand by VTR. Georgia Dome's hot. You're hot, Atlanta. Somebody, Arrowhead, then back to mile high. Is that how it goes? We're live here in 60 seconds. Somebody, anybody. What do you need? Does Arrowhead. Arrowhead bounces to mile high. Thank you. Why'd you change that? Just to mess with your head. Get me Judy at Oakland, Alameda. When you get right down to it, what I'm saying is this, Case. I think you should start getting out of your house. Sam, we're going to Arrowhead first, then Denver. Got it. Just out of your house. I am out of my house. Been out of my house for six months. I don't live in my house. 30 seconds to We're coming to the studio in 90 seconds. Good evening. Isaac Jaffe's in the house, Natalie. Yo, we can make a fee on 43. Just make sure the guys have the change. Casey, did you get the change on Arrowhead in Denver? Natalie? If you shat into a microphone when I'm wearing an earpiece, it poses the question, is there a decibel level at which the human head will just, you know, explode? Is he in a better mood than he was this morning, or is this going to be another crappy show? Hey, Casey, Isaac wants to know if you're in a better mood. Shut up. Pretty crappy, yeah. Roll tape. Good show, everybody. Tonight on Sports Night, we'll show you what comes up. Dan, Casey, we're on you in 60 seconds. Uh, excuse me. Dan's got his hand raised. Why are we quoting high-level sources inside the Swiss Olympic Committee on Helsinki's bid for the 2010 Olympics? What's the problem? Helsinki's in Finland. Really? Yeah, don't worry, I got it. Are you sure? Am I sure that Helsinki's in Finland? Yeah, I'm quite sure. I thought it was in Sweden. It says unnamed Swiss Olympic officials. Graphics, which is it, Sweden or Switzerland? It's in Finland. Elliot! Get something up on the net. What do you need? We think Helsinki might be in Finland. Yeah, we think there's a pretty good chance. Coming in live in 15. We'll change it on the teleprompter. Cool. We can go out after the show. You can stay at my place. Hey, whatever you need. Whatever you need. I'm getting a divorce. I don't need a cruise director. Right? My foul. Get I said anything. In five, four, three, two, one. Good evening, everybody from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell, alongside Casey McCall. Those stories and more. Plus, we'll take you live to the locker room at Arrowhead. All that coming up after this. You're watching Sports Night on CSC, so stick around. We're out. Up in 60. Yeah? Finland, the national bird is the whooping swan. That was Aaron Sorkin's first television show, and we worked over at the Disney Studios. We had stage six, and we would literally get into work we had the whole building, and because of the way that it was shot, you could open your door out of your editing room and they'd be shooting in the hallway, or maybe you had to use the stairs that day because they were in the elevator. And it was as if anything was possible, and it was just so much fun. We were just creating a whole new world and a whole new language and just having the best time ever. And Aaron Sorkin's office was right across the hallway from me. And he would come into my room and just sit on the sofa and just say, hey, show me something. And we just were like a bunch of kids in a candy store and having a great time. 
So I would have to say that was probably my favorite and the biggest heartbreak when the show got canceled. Now, working in television, you have to deal with, if not censorship, at least with some of the studios and the networks looking over your shoulder to a certain degree about what can and can't be shown. And how do you view that? Is that something that is kind of a challenge or is that something that's a frustration? When you first hear about it, it's frustrating because it's just yet another bunch of notes or changes or somebody else trying to, you know, step on what you've done. But the more you think about it, the more it really forces you to be more creative and and dig deep and find a different way of doing things. Sometimes the challenges are liberating and fun. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me about editing, and congratulations on your award. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to another archive edition of KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'll be back with new episodes in two weeks. Cinema Junkie comes out every other Friday. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.